Radio Land, Podcastville, and all the ships at sea. My name is Boris Traluk. I am the executive editor of the Los Angeles Review of Books, and you are listening to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported LA Review of Books. Today, I'll be talking with David McFadden, professor of comparative literature and musicology at UCLA, and one of the world's foremost experts on Russian popular culture. David is joining us by phone. I'm also joined by Sasha Razor, a graduate student at UCLA, a fellow product of the Soviet Union, and a dear friend. Today we'll be speaking about the holiday traditions of the former Soviet Union, which are still with us today. Sasha, thank you very much for joining me. Hello, Boris. Sasha, today I would like to talk a little bit about something that we know well. We grew up in the former Soviet Union. I left in 1991 with my family, right before the collapse. And you stayed on in your native Belarus for a few more years yet, almost a decade. So today I would like to revisit our childhood memories of the former Soviet Union. One thing that I'd like to ask you about is you teach a course on the languages of Los Angeles. Can you tell us a little bit about the course and what insight that course has given you into the Russian emigrate community here in L.A.? So I'm a TA for the course taught by very famous Russian linguist and scholar, Professor Vyacheslav Seoldovich Ivanov. And because I worked for so many years on the course right now, I did research a lot in the immigrant communities in Los Angeles. Currently, we usually say that we have about 350,000 Russians living in L.A. and about mm-hmm. half million Armenians living in L.A. and a part of these Armenians come from the Soviet Union. Mm-hmm. So all in all, there is a great variety of Russian speakers here and the Soviet holiday traditions live on in Los Angeles as well. Wonderful. I am one, of course, of those Russians, but I'm not exactly Russian. So could you speak a little bit about what we mean when we say 350,000 Russians? Who good, are these people? Good question. So we identify all possible speakers of the Russian language which come from the former Soviet Union, but not necessarily Russia proper, but the Soviet republics. Mm-hmm. So we have a large Jewish population, people from Ukraine, people from Lithuania and Latvia, Belarus, Caucasian republics, as well as Central Asia. So when we say Russian, we mean anyone from the former Soviet Union who speaks the Russian language and might, in addition, speak several languages as well. Mm-hmm. For example, the course that I recently taught for the heritage speakers of Russian, most of my students were trilingual, and Russian was the third yes. language which they spoke. That's fascinating. One of the legacies of the Soviet Union is that, of course, we do share this second or third language, the Russian language. I grew up speaking Russian, predominantly Russian, in Odessa, Ukraine, But I had, of course, friends and neighbors that spoke Ukrainian as their first language. And I grew up learning Ukrainian in the schools. But this dual culture really existed under an umbrella of Russian culture put forward by the Soviet Union across the Soviet realm. And with it came a number of traditions. One of the things that I had to explain to my friends in Los Angeles over and over again is why my family would buy Christmas trees after most people were already depositing theirs on the sidewalk. So what I'd like to ask you about right now is the New Year's tradition and how that came about, when Russians celebrate New Year's, why they celebrate a New Year's as if it were Christmas. Could you give us a little insight into that? From what I know, Christmas was forbidden in 1920s in the Soviet Union as a religious holiday. And instead, they had gatherings of the communist youth where they had the anti-religious propaganda, etc., etc. But... The children of the proletariat were growing up deprived of the Christmas and the Christmas trees and all the wonderful lavish feasts that 
mm-hmm. people had in the Tsarist Russia. The tradition was banned in 1929. Any celebration of New Year's as if it were Christmas was banned in 1929. It was reintroduced as a New Year's celebration in 1935 by a fellow named Pavel Postashev, who was, among other things, responsible for the Great Famine in Ukraine in 1932-33. In 1935, he wrote a letter to Pravda, the Communist Party organ, basically making the case that you made just now that you summarized, that before the revolution, working-class children were deprived of these festivities. They looked on with envy at the bourgeois celebrations of Christmas. And this worker state should reintroduce this wonderful festivity for its working-class youth, for the new Soviet youth. And this was 1935, which is not an easy time in the Soviet Union. They could use all the relief they could get. So back in 1935, the Christmas trees were backed, but the tree topper was the red star. And Uh this is the same glorious glowing red star that both of us probably had on our New Year trees growing up in the Soviet Union. And this is when the Soviet tradition of celebrating the New Year started to gel. Mm -hmm. This is when the canonic dishes were developed. Mm -hmm. One of such dishes is the salad Olivier, which was originally invented in 1860s by a French chef who worked at a restaurant called Hermitage in Moscow. This was a very lavish dish consisting of crayfish tails, wild grouse, black caviar, and it was served with a fancy French sauce on the side. But drunken Russian merchants used to combine both together, mm-hmm. and the chef probably thought, oh, like, this is life, and he just started mixing this salad. And from that time on, this became the famous signature salad of the restaurant. Back in the 1920s and then 30s, Russian chefs reinvented this salad. They made a literal remix, substituting all the fancy ingredients with the simple Soviet ingredients. For example, they would take the crawfish tails and substitute it for carrots, and fancy capers would be substituted for green peas and... When it came to the wild grouse, it was the simple chicken. Mm -hmm. So very much a mirror of the New Year's tradition, old, old wine and new bottles. Can you tell me a little bit about some other dishes associated with New Year's? Because it's a big festive table that I remember well. So this was the only apolitical Soviet holiday, and this was the largest meal of the year, kind of like Thanksgiving in America. At the same time, if you look at each dish, it is full of history and politics, and we cannot truly call it apolitical if we know something about the history of food in the Soviet Union. So we've already mentioned Olivier and how it was remade, and the canonical classical version of Olivier that we know today comes with chopped bologna sausage, which was only Mm. mass-produced in the Soviet Union in the 70s. And right now, for example, I'm following closely a Russian writer, Tatiana Dalstaya, who has a blog on Facebook and she would post recipe salad and you Mm -hmm. have thousands of people arguing in comments like whether this recipe is germane or the other (laughs) one and what's the best one. If there is one thing that all Russians can agree on is that their family makes the best Olivia, et cetera, et cetera. Absolutely. And we usually distinguish between the plebeian version with bologna sausage and then the aristocratic version with the chicken meat or cold cuts. So other dishes include... Pickled herring under the fur coat, which was invented... It sounds better in Russian, believe me. Yes, silotka patshube, pickled herring under the fur coat. So it was invented again in Moscow in 1918, after the Bolshevik uprising, because drunken 
political activists, as we could yeah. <laughs> call them today, would storm the tractors, which was a drinking and eating establishment of a kind, and drink a lot. So they had to come up with a cheap appetizer, and which was a herring buried under layers of vegetables, mm-hmm. boiled veggies, cut, cut in julienne strips, and drenched in mayonnaise. Mm-hmm. And this is a traditional Russian dish which goes well with vodka. Mm-hmm. And after all, the two words, vodka and selotka, rhyme in Russian. Of course, of course, and in Russian lives. Can you tell me a little bit about your own memories of, let's say, your mother or your grandmother making these dishes for New Year's? So this is a traditional dish made in Belarus, both Soviet and post-Soviet, for New Year's. And what I remember is the hands of women in mm-hmm. my family tinted in all hues of red and purple. Mm-hmm. And I always thought of this dish as literally red, yes, but also politically red, because it was invented after 1918. That's one way to get people in alliance. Can you tell me a little bit about some of the other culinary traditions? When did Soviet cooking really come into its own? How does it differ from Russian cooking? Is there one source text? as it were, as there is for everything else in Soviet Russia? So there is an interesting story about the publication of the first Soviet cookbook. I would translate its title as the Book of Taste and Healthy Food, published in 1939. And the Russian People's Commissary of the Food Industries, Anastas Mikoyan, was partly mm-hmm. responsible for bringing forward this volume. So the book was extremely popular and reprinted on millions and millions of copies. And in fact, the last edition came out in 2016, to my surprise, and this book is still going on and on. So basically, every Soviet woman had this exact book in their household, and different editions featured various political agendas. For example, after Stalin's death, they removed some quotes by Stalin in Mm -hmm. this book and inserted something else. But it is a renowned vehicle of the Soviet propaganda because they would have inserts explaining that people in capitalist countries didn't have enough food on their table. And at the same time, they would present this lavish, lavish recipes with complex ingredients for women to learn how to cook. The only problem was that they couldn't get their hands on all these ingredients in the real life because of the yes. scarcity of goods in the Soviet Union. But my grandma had one of such books, and after she died, my grandfather gave it to me for my wedding as a present, and I have it here with me in LA. Wonderful. Do you use it frequently? I sometimes looked at it because I'm really interested in the culinary histories, yes. and the recipes are complex, and some of the recipes are created by a famous Russian culinary historian, William Pakhlopkin, mm-hmm. who is a very interesting figure. He intrigues me because his life, his book on vodka, his mm-hmm. study of the tea culture in Russia. I do have an academic interest in this book. We do celebrate New Year's on the 1st of January. Some people also celebrate Old New Year's, which is a strange concept. Can you tell us a little bit about Old New Year's? So from what I understand, the Tsarist Russia was operating under the Julian calendar. And the calendar reforms in Russia are a bit complicated because it was first Peter the Great who had some kind of calendar upgrade. And then Bolsheviks had to move the calendar for another two weeks, switching from Julian to Gregorian calendar. So most Russian people celebrate the traditional New Year's and then the old New Year's, which falls on the January 13th to January 14th. This way acknowledging both traditions. As well as stretching out the festivities, because in the of middle course. of that falls of old course. Christmas. So the table keeps getting refilled day in and day out for about two weeks. Yeah, so uh, for these two weeks, the entire country is paralyzed. It's true for all 
former Soviet republics. Yes. And people cannot get any work done. So if you need a text edited or translated. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Oh, don't <laughs> like, I know it's it. It's really hard. I wouldn't just say the post-Soviet space, but also lands with large populations of former Soviet citizens. Israel, curiously enough, celebrates Novogod as well as Stare Novogod in certain families because there are a lot of post-Soviet citizens of the former Soviet Union living in Israel. It's a strange tradition that we've broadcast to the whole world, the Soviet but New Year's. it's also intimate reliving of this pre-revolutionary realities when the New Year was at a different day. Just by performing this ritual over and over, we still commemorate the, the political change that took place about 100 years ago. Absolutely. Almost exactly 100 years ago. You are listening to the LARB Radio Hour broadcasting from Emerson College in the heart of Hollywood. Now it's time for this week's book review. My name is Boris Draluk. I'm the executive editor of the LA Review of Books, and I am joined by Sasha Razor, graduate student at UCLA and expert in Soviet and post-Soviet culture. We are now faced, along with all Americans, by the prospect of a new Russia in the world, a new role for Russia in world politics. And I'm sure that just as Sasha and I have been having these conversations for the past few months, so have the rest of you. And we would like to recommend a book that I think gets at the heart of Putin's Russia in a rather unique way, not a sociology, but more of a memoir of operating in a Putinesque media landscape by Peter Pomerantsev, a journalist based in the UK who writes frequently for the London Review of Books. His book appeared in 2014. It is called Nothing is True and Everything is Possible. It is a really head-spinning analysis in retrospect of Russia's descent into a post-truth reality. If you want to understand what has happened to Russia after the collapse of the Soviet Union and the reemergence of a new form of totalitarianism that is and isn't like what came before, then I can't recommend a book more highly than Pomerantsev's memoir. There are, of course, any number of books about Putin's Russia today, but this particular insider's view, I think, is very valuable. I also do recommend this book. It explains some dynamic of today, but it was published in 2014, so it was written way before. And I think that Pomerantsev looks in-depth and sees the trends that did emerge in Russia after the, the engagement in Crimea and the conflict in Ukraine. Also, from what I know, Pomerantsev is partly Ukrainian. Yes, his father was a Soviet emigre, an exile, who is a great poet, actually, Igor Pomerantsev. And yes, he is the son of a Ukrainian Jewish emigre. So it also gives a very balanced perspective on the issues of nationality and nationalism and the dynamic between the post-Soviet republics. Absolutely. Again, the book is Nothing is True and Everything is Possible by Peter Pomerantsev. Now back to our conversation with Sasha Razor and David McFadden about Soviet holiday traditions. Now I would like to pose a few questions to our guest by phone, David McFadden. David, for full disclosure, was my mentor at UCLA. He's written two books on Joseph Brodsky. He has written at least three books on the Russian popular song tradition, as well as Russian animated television, as well as pop culture in Uzbekistan, 
He is the world's foremost expert in Russian and Soviet popular culture. There's really no one better suited to answer this question. I've spoken a bit about the Soviet New Year's tradition. Could you, David, fill us in a little bit on the traditional TV programs broadcast on New Year's Eve in the Soviet and post-Soviet realm? When it comes to the end of the New Year, to a large degree, Russian television and Russian radio, Russian national media, if you like, they reflect a lot of the emphases that we'd expect to see in any country. People just forgetting about, let's say, the less attractive aspects of a year gone by and looking forward with increased optimism to what a new year might bring. And arguably the best tradition, the most Russian of all these televisual traditions, is something, again, that we might expect to see in other countries. And that's an overview of popular songs. So the most popular songs play again, giving a sense of repetition, of conclusion to the year gone by. And for people of, let's say, the age 40, 50, 60 or older, they'll remember the oldest of these pop song reviews, which was called Pesnya Gorda, or Song of the Year. And people would purportedly, their votes would constitute a list of the most popular songs of the year. So the presumption was there that it was a nod in the direction of genuine popular taste and not a list of the most officially acceptable songs. And then these, over the course of several hours, would be played very often to orchestral accompaniment. So all of this was done live. The show goes way back to 1971 and still exists in a slightly different form today. But what's really interesting about that is because we think of popular song as the most lyrical or the most private, the most intimate way of expressing oneself, it's kind of telling to see what songs were constituted this program at various times in Russian history. So if you look at these New Year's television shows in the 70s when it was under Brezhnev, that was a period of the Cold War, of stability, of what some Russians refer to as internal emigration. So if you couldn't leave the country, you could at least ignore politics and get back to um, individual experience. So politics was both happily tedious, the Second World War had gone, but also frustratingly tedious in the sense that the future offered very little. And then if you look at the same shows, let's say in the 80s, already that's under Gorbachev, you're dealing with the opposite problem, which is that instability is the norm and popular song is either trying to express more protest or, according to the same logic, it's still trying to be escapist. So whether life is too dull or too insecure, too dangerous, because changes are happening too fast, popular song is a really great way of escaping those things. So even in the West, you could look at, let's say, the world economic downturn of the mid-70s, and both punk and disco were responses to that, one being protest and the other one being radical escapism. Very interesting. You've written a book on the great Soviet filmmaker Eldar Ryazanov. His film Irony of Fate, which premiered on Soviet television on January 1st, 1976, has become a New Year's tradition in its own right. Could you say a few things about this film and its continued appeal? It really is the Russian It's a Wonderful Life. What does it tell us about Soviet culture and about that Soviet culture's continued relevance in today's post-Soviet realm? There is, without doubt, no more festive film in Russia than The Irony of Fate, which is now 40 years old. In fact, slightly more, 41 actually, I guess, on New Year's Day, and was originally shot for television, which is very strange. It just was such a hit on television in a very long format, in two very long sections, each of which could constitute a feature film on its own, so it takes up a whole evening. But it was so popular that it was then taken out on a run across cinema screens in the Soviet Union and is now thought of as a 
work of cinema, which it doesn't really look like. It, and that's important because it's basically the story of what happens to two people in one apartment. So to explain things very quickly without spoiling as much as possible, because it is a romantic comedy and nothing is more predictable than romantic comedies, perhaps. A young doctor has a tradition with his friends of going to the bathhouse, the banya, the Russian banya, and celebrating New Year's Eve each and every year. On this particular occasion, due to a rather complicated mix-up, he gets on a plane for which he does not have a ticket. He's not supposed to be the passenger, but he flies all the way from Moscow to Leningrad. And because all Soviet architecture, and this is one of the jokes of the film, because all Soviet architecture looks the same, all the streets have the same predictably communist names, such as Shipbuilder Street or Lenin Street or Red Street and so on, he gets in a cab and asks to go to his real address. But that street also exists in another city. That building also exists. He walks into a building that has the same design as his. And wonder of wonders, his key even fits the lock. And he finds himself in what he thinks is his apartment, but at this point he's so hammered, that was the reason he got on the plane in the first place, mistakenly. He tumbles into the bed and believes himself to be home, and a young woman appears in the background and is horrified to find this drunk stranger. So, without going further into the story, and you can imagine what the main pivot here, the dramatic pivot, which is, will these two complete strangers, one of whom is drunk and the other of whom is sober, actually come to some sort of understanding? And this belief that, as the title suggests, that the irony of fate is such that people who have nothing in common with one another do not live in the same city, do not have the same profession, so we have a, a teacher and a doctor, nonetheless might fall in love. So this is, just as with those pop songs, it's incredibly consoling. There's the idea that good things might happen. Real life would not suggest as much, but fate may have other plans. So it tells us a lot about Soviet culture in the sense that no matter what politics said, what people wanted was actually much simpler. So even though politics spoke of grand fraternal progress, the idea of countless millions marching on together into the future, at the end of the day, people just wanted that sort of micro-social connection. They weren't interested in two million people, they were interested in two. And so I think whatever's going on in the real world, which never makes anybody happy, the irony of fate is, just like romantic comedies in the West perhaps, shows you that no matter how bad things appear to be, maybe Cupid has much grander and happier plans for us all. Very good. You've devoted a number of years to building a remarkable online resource called Far From Moscow, where you've archived more than 1.5 million compositions from Slavic, Baltic, and Central Asian lands. Would you mind telling us a bit about the project? How has the pop landscape changed over the past 25 years since the collapse of the Soviet Union? And what do you see on the horizon? For instance, what will Russian television broadcast this New Year's? Far From Moscow, at its very root, is a Soviet novel, a rather tedious Soviet novel from just after the Second World War about a man who wants to be sent to the front line to fight fascism, which is excellent. But he is sent by the party in the opposite direction. He is told that, as an engineer, he must go to the back of Siberia and help to keep the oil lines operating so that there will be fuel for the tanks and so forth that are on the front line. So, in other words, without this effort in deepest Siberia, nothing could happen in the battles of Poland and Belarus and, and Germany and so forth. 
So I just took it as the name of the project because what the project does, my project, is to document all of the interesting things that are happening in contemporary music. And by that, I mean amateur, experimental, DIY music all across Russia and surrounding nations. Because if we look back at those pop music broadcasts we were just talking about at New Year's Eve... What they have tended to do year after year after year since the end of the Soviet Union is actually reflect once again perhaps what is not truly popular, but which musicians are in the most position to pay for their time online. Because due to piracy, the only way that people can make money now is by touring. And the only way to be a successful touring act is to have your face in the public view all the time so that when people see your posters, they buy your tickets. Therefore, these New Year's entertainment shows, light entertainment shows, just reflect that. They reflect to a very large degree which performers are able to fund their own face on national media on on a regular basis. So in order to escape from that, because we're looking at a time when television is radically losing ground to the internet, I think Russian democracy will reflect this very, very quickly. Hopefully we're on the very threshold of a time when people will stop watching one television set with one multimedia message, but instead, as we do, look around the web for maybe, let's say, official sources of news and unofficial sources of news. And one precursor, or if you like, even harbinger of that, is what's going on with amateur music. So I'm interested in little independent labels or people who make music on cassette tapes on their kitchen table or under their kitchen table in those same Siberian towns. So now on the website, there's something resembling 4,000 different bands and artists and performers from two different marketplaces, from Russia, Belarus and Ukraine. That's one because the languages are similar enough that performers can move around. And the other one, according to a similar logic, is Estonia, Latvia and Lithuania. So that's a little marketplace as well. And I'll be launching a streaming music service, sort of like a Russian Spotify, if you like, because Spotify doesn't work in Russia, within the next two months, maybe. And so I've collected well over now two and a half million tracks from those different marketplaces. And it seems either... A project of great social worth, I hope, because it shows people what's going on in various regions, what's going on in their region, no matter the genre, no matter the style. But it may even be something of commercial value, since as we are leaving the age of national media behind, even national commercial media behind, what the web is doing, especially in Russia, in a country where most people spend time on social networks than anywhere in the world, you're seeing a return to local phenomena because we can't follow the web it's just too big in the same way russians can't follow the whole country so the size of that that daunting unmanageable size is actually it's going to return people to a much more local focus since folks in larger countries don't tend to move great distances very often or if they do it's just once in their life from let's say a village to a city And performers certainly can't go anywhere more than 200 miles from home. It makes no financial sense. So what I'm seeing now in terms of forthcoming styles is everything and anything, because what you see on national television is only something, and something very particular, something that's very marketable. And if piracy has destroyed that, and if the web has destroyed national television, what's online is this fantastic mosaic, this kaleidoscope of anything that you might hope to find. And with a bit of luck, with a bit of help, and maybe with a few good translations, some of these young men and women will start to constitute a much more 
varied and inclusive and diverse showcase for contemporary performance, all the way from, let's say, the Baltic Sea to the Sea of Japan. So please do check out the site, farfrommoscow.com, and I think you'll find more than you could ever want or need. So on that note... David, thank you very much for your expertise. Thank you for joining us from the UK. Thanks very much for having me. Have a good night. Sasha, could you tell us a little bit about the celebrations here in Los Angeles? And if our listening audience here in Los Angeles would like to participate in some Soviet New Year's traditions, where would they go to find these dishes? So from what I know, immigrant culture in Los Angeles is very conservative and they do continue with the Soviet food that Russians themselves in Russia proper might not necessarily consume as much. But what's different here is that most families order their food at the local stores and restaurants. So, for example, for the January 1st, I'm going to have my family over and I will serve classic traditional Soviet menu consisting of salad olivier and seredka patshubay, pickled herring on the fur coat. Also, the aspect, the gelled meat, which is an interesting dish and has its own history as well as some fish. So I do recommend going to a variety of Russian grocery stores for this. For one is Odessa and Mm -hmm. Michita, which are located on Santa Monica between Ogden and Kherson. And this is ironically the place where Boris grew up. Yes, a block away. From Odessa to Odessa Deli. In all my years in Los Angeles, I never thought I'd be shilling for Odessa Deli on radio, but here I am. But it is a quintessential immigrant experience to go there and try to buy your food in Russian or English and try to navigate in this cramped store. It is a real Soviet experience. You are not getting the customer treatment that you're used to. You are getting a very Soviet experience when you go to Odessa Deli. It's a bit like Soviet Disneyland in that regard. And the queue might be long and you have to stand there and talk to the ladies next to you. So it's very interesting in this respect. And from what I know, most people do stick to the traditional menu. My Armenian friends, on the other hand, they do also supplement with the Armenian dishes, such as rice pilaf, and Mm -hmm. the variety of Caucasian cultures make their own rice pilaf in Central Asia. There are many recipes for that as well. So in conclusion, we wish you a very happy holiday season. Let's blend our traditions. Thank you, Sasha, for joining us. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you very much. And again, thank you, David, for calling in and filling us in on Russian pop culture. You've been listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Thanks to our executive producer, Gustavo Turner, our fellow producers, Kate Wolf and Erica Recordin, editorial advisor, Dinah Lenny, engineer, Ernesto Arellano, researcher, Chloe Chap production volunteer Jake Levins and special thanks as always to Alan Minsky no one's moral conscience for production assistance